please turn to the book of Ephesians. I don't know about you, but I need a God whose mercy is more because our sins are many, right? I love that song. And it's um, good to be reminded of that. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Let's read um, verses 1 through 8. We're going to look at 6 through 8 this morning. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by the revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles by the prophets and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me through, I am the very least of all saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come this morning, um, just pray your blessings not only on today's service as we continue on in it, but on today's word as we preach uh, this truth that enlivens, encourages, that gives us hope, that you would fill this congregation with hope. If there's anything that we need in this world as we look around, as we come from our varied backgrounds this week, as we gather together, as we leave the world outside the walls of this building and we come in to the shelter of the blood of Jesus Christ, we need to be filled. We need to be encouraged. We need to be reminded that you're good, you're merciful. Yes, that you're just and you're wrathful, that you're holy and you're loving, and that you're forgiving and that you're sanctifying us in your son Jesus. Help us to work with that. We struggle sometimes with encouragement. Just encourage us this morning as we go through these words. Build us up so that we can go out into this world, glorify you, and teach others of the great grace that you have given us. Go past my simple words this morning. Speak directly to the heart of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this passage of scripture is well familiar by now. And um, I, I marvel at uh, how different people take different parts from it as we go through a passage like this. And and I went back and I looked at some of my notes from when I first preached through Ephesians. And I didn't... Or, and, Ephesians, and when I went through chapter 3, uh, I didn't spend nearly as much time on this passage as I have this time, but, and sometimes I just need to do that, right? So I can, uh, I can get it, uh, get every bit that's come out of it, but I often pray about it, and I, I just say, God, what do you want me to say, and what, where are we headed, and, and what is there for the hearts of your people, because God knows each and one of your needs. I mean, I try, and uh, I pray for each of you, and every person that comes in contact with this church and and these people uh, but he knows them specifically and um, so it's in that prayer and the working of the holy spirit that we meet here in chapter three and we've spent time in this and verses six through eight this morning and i saw something here this week uh, that just went through the center of my heart it was so encouraging 
and um, I want to share it with you this morning. And it, and it has to deal with something I think we all struggle with at some level, and that is, what is my purpose? Have you ever struggled with that, knowing what your purpose is? I mean, like, what am I really supposed to be doing, Lord? What, what does all this mean? Why am I here? What do you want me to do? And, it, you know, it's not complicated. We complicate it. We make it a much harder than it needs to be. And, um, you know, it's a question that pastors get all the time. So I want to tell you specifically this morning, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the scriptures complete harmonic, completely harmonious on this truth, what your purpose is. The word of God emphatically teaches us that your purpose and the purpose of every man, woman, and child is simply this, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Right? In fact, that's embedded into the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It was written in 1646 and 47. The first question, you know what a catechism is, right? It's a, just a, when you catechize a child, you give him simple questions. And in the answer, it teaches profound truths. But they're short and quick. It's kind of like nursery rhymes, but it includes God. It's like nursery rhymes that can save your life. So a catechism does that. And the first question of the Westminster Catechism, Shorter Catechism, is the most important. And it reads, what it question, what is the chief end of man, or the chief purpose, or the chief goal of every man? And the answer to that in the Westminster is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But your very next question should be, if you're like me and struggle with this sometimes, how do I do that? How am I supposed to glorify God? In what manner, what way, what can I do? How can I glorify God? I mean, I make mistakes. <laughs> I, 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 um, I uh, get impatient only once a week, every weekday, right? Uh, we all do that. So how can we glorify God? And the next two questions in the Westminster will help us. But this passage, I think, will help you more with your purpose this morning because in it is a profound truth about how sin changes us. A profound truth about how sin changes us. But let me read the second two questions that follow along with the first question from Westminster so that you'll have those on your heart. What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? That's a good next question. The word of God. Listen closely, folks, because it's in answering these questions that you answer the questions you have on your heart. What is my purpose? And you know what that is. It's to glorify God because you're a Christian or you're a professed believer. But how to do that is answered here. What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? The word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. It's not found in the world. It's found in the scriptures, the only rule. And the third question, what do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty, did you hear that? What rule and duty, now we're covering that, how, right? The how and why. And the duty God requires of man. 
The answers to those questions and all those questions we have in our lives is found, as I find it here this morning in the book of Ephesians, in verses 6 through 8. Three points. The mystery. Don't miss this now if you're out wandering around. The mystery, or if you just went, you stopped watching the live feed just momentarily and you went to get more coffee. Don't miss this part. Replay it. The mystery, the man, and the magnitude. Paul gives us in this little short passage these three truths. The mystery, the man, and the magnitude. The mystery, as we're going to see, is how a people who were not God's people became God's people. And we're going to see that same mystery work out on on personal level because the man who was not God's man became God's man. In verse 6, do you see it there? Read it with me. Uh, The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, the Gentiles or the nations weren't God's people, but they were made God's people. So that's the mystery. And then the man of this gospel, Paul says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. The man who was not God's man became God's man. Because I don't think we think about Paul like that. I've said a lot about Paul's former life being a murderer. Now he's a minister. He literally murdered Christians trying to stop and persecute the way, and then he became the greatest missionary. He literally persecuted Christians to death because he wanted to wipe them off the face of the planet, and then he wrote 13 books of the New Testament. He found his purpose somewhere, did he not? You see it? You can get a little glimpse of it. What took him off course? Sin. What takes all of us off course? Sin. So the mystery... It's how people who are not God's people became God's people. And the man is how man who was not God's man became God's man. And it's all because of the magnitude of the riches of Jesus Christ. Okay? The magnitude of the riches of Jesus Christ. Okay, and I say that sounds a bit fantastic, doesn't it? But this is it. The mystery, the man, the magnitude, how God gives man and life purpose and meaning in a world of death and destruction. How God gives man purpose and meaning, how God gives man in life purpose and meaning in a world of death and destruction. And I know that admittedly sounds a bit fantastic this morning, but we live in a world of death and destruction. And I want you to be encouraged. I want you to leave this sanctuary this morning, greatly encouraged this morning, that you have and know what you need to be able to glorify God. So first, let's just take a brief look at this mystery. The mystery that Paul is referring to, as I said, He said a lot about it. Verse 3 says the mystery was given to him by revelation. The mystery that he had written about that we can perceive and understand. We talked about how it was revealed to him on the road to Damascus. How all of it was revealed and how he was given the ability to write that down. And that we can perceive and understand through his writings. That is the New Testament. It's the mystery of Christ as he calls it. The mystery, verse 5, that was not made known to men in other generations but has now been made known to the holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. What is that mystery, and why is it important to you, and how does the mystery apply to your life and help me live the way I should? How does this give give life and meaning and purpose to your life today, this mystery that Paul's talking about? Well, he comes right out and tells us what it is. As I said in verse 6, All you have to do is read it. It's as plain as the nose on our faces. The mystery is that the Gentiles, or people who are not God's people, 
our fellow heirs, that means something very legal, and they become members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. And don't miss that last little phrase that this happens through the gospel. Paul comes right out and says that it's the Gentiles, and remember, ethnos, ethnicity, this is all other peoples, all other nations beside the Jews. These are all other peoples that were not God's people and how they became God's people. And that is ultimately that it's through the gospel. And that's the key phrase here in this. They became fellow heirs. They became members of the same body. Beloved, they became partakers of the promise of Jesus Christ through the gospel. Simply put, the mystery is that God is, through the gospel, making a people who was not his people to become his people. That is, that a people who was not God's people can now, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, become the people of God. That's the greatest news to us and to this world that could ever be given, is that the gospel saves you and makes you sons and daughters of the almighty God. Legal heirs. It's the church. It's the church. It's important to you and it applies to your life because it's us people. You were not God's people, and now you're God's people. And it's the mystery of what God's doing from before the foundations of the world. It's this glorious mystery that as we begin to expand it, as we go into verses 9 and 10 over the next few Sundays, we'll see that it is the one thing that all of creation looks to, to see the wisdom and glory of God in. In 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, if you have your scriptures turned there this morning, 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, it's just a few pages over. Peter sees this uh, and understands it from Old Testament prophecy, and he gives it to us in a way that we better understand it today. Let's read verse 10 first. 1 Peter 2, verse 10. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Do you see that there in the scriptures? Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. In other words, once you were under God's wrath, but now you're uh, heir to God's throne. Not God's throne. Strike that from the record, please. But heir to God's mercy through Jesus Christ. Once you were no people, now you've become somebody. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That glorious verse 10 should be on the lips of everybody in this building this morning. You weren't a people, now you're a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You didn't even know you need it until God turned you on and said, you are under my wrath, you need my son Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel does. But then once God gives us that, once we become his people, you can read verse 9. Because it totally changes our understanding, legally and positionally before God, and in this world. Verse 9 says, but you're a chosen race. Huh. Well, I was nobody, but I was chosen. How does that work out? We'll work on that for just a minute. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you what? May proclaim the excellencies of him. Is that your purpose? Is that what the Westminster is saying? That you may glorify him. That you may tell everybody about how great a God you know. How great a God saved you. And oh, by the way, this has always been the plan because you were a chosen race. You were a part of a chosen race. God chose you in Jesus Christ. If we go back to chapter 1, verse 
verse 4, it says, Before the foundations of the world, he chose you in Christ to receive all the heavenly blessings that he has in store for his people. Once you were not God's people, but now you are God's people. And all this, even the legal parts of it, are through the gospel, as Paul says there in verse 6. He totally changed you. You were chosen from the beginning. Not only are you a chosen race, but you're a royal priesthood. That should give you just a little bit of insight into how you fulfill your purpose to glorify God. A chosen race, a royal, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. The mystery is that you are now God's people, the church, the bride of Christ, a people chosen by God. Before the foundation of the world, as I said, and saved and redeemed and unified in a radical unity that I don't think we quite understand, we're growing towards that. Remember a few weeks ago when we all locked arms here because we were all blocks in God's building? We are that building, but we're becoming radically unified in a way that we don't quite understand. But as God tests us who we are, this church will see the radical unity because you'll be called to rely upon one of your brothers or sisters that are sitting here. And a great church, when it begins to practice the one another's when we truly pray for one another when we truly count one another better than ourselves when we love one another when we consider one another more important than ourselves then we become a church that just like obliterates every standard of church I've seen them. I've been in these good churches. We got the first beginnings of that. Brothers and sisters, we come together in Christ in such a way that the world sees us as something outstanding and special and something that they don't have. Great churches do great things, and we're on the cusp of heading that direction. When we locked arms, we need to lock hearts. We need to lock minds. We need to lock all of our potential in what God has set us forth to do and put this community on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can do that. We can do that, beloved. We can educate children. We can share the gospel. We can show a community what it means to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. They will know us by our love for one another, Jesus says. And they will want that. The mystery is that you are now God's people, the church, the bride of Christ, a people chosen by God. Good night. Let's act like that, right? Let's live like we believe that. Let's be those people of God. And this all happened because of God before the foundation. It's a radical change that brings a radical unity within a people group. And that's what Paul's saying. These people were not God's people, but now they are everything that God's people are. And that's you, people. You have been blessed with all the blessings and promises in Christ. A great church can work wonders in its community. It can change. Hey, let me give you an example of that. Do you know what the Puritans did? They left England on a little boat called the Mayflower. And they come and they build a nation called the United States. (laughs) That's the spirit. That's what we have. Think about how the church in the first century relied on one another. As you read the New Testament, they sold their belongings so they could support one another. If it's necessary, that's what we're called to do. We're called to love one another, support one another, care for one another. All the one another's of Scripture. To pray for one another. When I heard that about Danielle, I mean, beloved, that is somebody's precious daughter sitting in this congregation. We should pray for one another. 
I don't, there's nothing greater I can do for you other than to teach you the truth and pray for you. And that's what we see Paul doing, isn't it, in Ephesians, Philippians? I pray that they become more full of the knowledge of who you are, God, as I teach. So verse 6 begins to tell us of that radical change when it illustrates a familiar change, right? Paul's saying that the Ephesians have become fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of the promises in Christ. Fellow heirs means that a people who are not legally before God's people, who are not entitled to any of the family blessings of God, any of the legal blessings or any of the family blessings of God, or any of the inheritance of Christ, are now entitled to all of the inheritance of Christ. That is, the riches of the family of God, because they are now members, as Paul says in verse 6, of that same family. And that is the church. And therefore, these promises are all received by us through the glorious promise inheritance as being partakers of that promise in Jesus Christ. And the way that people who are not God's people become God's people, heirs, members of the same family, partakers of the same promise, you see it there, and that last little phrase in verse 6 is through the gospel. This radical unity. But this radical unity, this radical change in a people group requires a radical change in every man, woman, and child sitting in this congregation. For the whole to look like that, the singular has to be changed. And that's where we come to view verse 7. The man, Paul. How a man who was not of God became a man of God. This is absolutely fascinating to me. Um, verse 7 here. If it was through the gospel that the people were changed, and we see it at the end of verse 6, Paul begins at the, uh, at the beginning of verse 7, of this gospel, I was made... A minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. Paul said, it's not something that I did. It's not something that I worked up. It's something that God did, and it's of the gospel. It's of the revelation that he had of Christ as he met him on the road to Damascus. It was the change that was wrought in him as he was moved from his position of sin to his position of salvation, uh, from the position of not being a people of God or a man of God to becoming a people or a man of God. It's the gospel that changes us into people and men and women and children of God. So it's the gospel that begins to show us our purpose this morning. Of this gospel, Paul says, man is hopelessly lost in sin and without his way, not knowing God before he encounters the gospel. That's what Paul is saying in not so many words. Not knowing God is not knowing truth. Not knowing God is not knowing the condemnation that you're under because of God. Not knowing God, as we studied this morning in Sunday school, is, is not knowing that the condition of sin that your heart is in and understanding it. Sin and the world misdirect a man into what they believe is correct because of that. And here's the connector. I'm going to stray way away from my notes here for a while, maybe an hour or two. Oh, come on. You can laugh at that. It'll probably only be an hour is that Paul really thought when he was living in sin that he was doing exactly what he was supposed to be doing in his life. Didn't he? How many of y'all done that? You want to know where your purpose is? You'll find it when you encounter the gospel. It's interesting to me that he was a religious man. It's interesting to me that he was a zealot for persecuting Christians, 
And he thought that was his purpose. He truly thought that it was his purpose. And from a little boy, I'm sure that he was taught, he uh, studied, as it says, under the feet of Gamaliel, one of the greatest teachers in the nation of, of, of Israel, one of the greatest uh, um, early San, uh, uh, leaders of Israel. Paul studied un, under him, and he knew everything about the law, and he believed that he was going to earn his righteousness by that law. He thought he was going in the exact right direction. In fact, he, he thought that so doggone much that he was willing to kill Christians because of that. There's a great lesson there, folks. Sin takes you so far off course that you'll be doing something that takes your life that you think is right. You'll be living in a way that is opposite the way of life and God, and you'll believe that it's exactly the way you're supposed to be living. That's what Paul was doing. But I want you to know that when you find your purpose, you'll first find it in Christ by knowing Christ and understanding that that way was wrong and God had a way for you to live, that he wants you to live, that you're able to bring glory to him. Paul, listen, here's the encouragement. I don't care how big your sin is or how bad your past life is, God can turn you into something he wants to use for the rest of your life that has purpose and meaning in the kingdom of God. Paul is the greatest illustration of that. Well, I could give you me because my life looks just like Paul's before God changed me. I thought I was doing the right thing. Do you see that? That should be so encouraging that through the gospel, we can be changed into somebody that God uses mightily. That matters. That's encouraging. That God can lift us up and use us in such a way. Now, Listen to me, there's two ways that sin works. There's the sin in the person like Paul who believed he was doing the right thing and he'd continue on it until he met God and he had a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then he come to know truth. But there's also people that are sinned against. I'm, I'm, I do a lot of pastoral counseling. And for some reason, God is, not for some reason, because he's taught me a lot of things about abuse, not only in children's lives, but in, a, in children's lives that have grown up to be adults that can continue to live by the standards that were done against them when they were children. Stay with me. I'll use the example of a young lady named Kate. When I met Kate and her husband, they'd been married for four years, and, and Kate was um, just desperate to, to fix her marriage, and she knew that her heart was the problem in her marriage. You see, what had happened to Kate was while she was growing up, her dad touched her. He had sinned against God and he had damaged this little girl. And this is such a common story. I can't tell you how many times I encounter this. This is why I wanted to give you hope this morning. Because Kate grew up believing that she was that little girl because of what her dad did. She couldn't wait to get out of her house when she was a little bit older, so she just grabbed the first guy that came along and she got pregnant just so she could leave and be married and be away from her father who did evil things. And this is a story that tells over and over and time again. So now Kate, fast forward, is uh, 
got a six-year-old. She's 26, 27 years old, and she wants her marriage to last, and she understands that all the things that she's bringing into the marriage are what's going to keep it from lasting if she doesn't change. But yet there's this great evil that's been done to her. In other words, she wants to go back to what she felt when she, you know, she wants to go back to that innocence. She wants to know what it means. She wants to understand Christ is working into her heart and she was saved and she wants this all to work out. And I looked right at her and I said, blessed young lady, you can have everything washed away this is not your identity because of what christ has done what your father did to you can be gone in christ they that was about 11 years ago they've got another child now she realized that the damage that she had lived with early on and brought into her marriage and to the world was gone in Jesus Christ. Never forgot. We never forget what's been done. But beloved, it does not identify us once we meet Jesus Christ. Paul had been taught this as a small boy. He grew up to grab a hold of it. But then he met the Lord Jesus Christ and he went 180 degrees in the opposite direction, fulfilling all of his purpose in Christ. This little girl had been hurt from her earliest memories on And she'd been running from this dragon that was her dad. And she met Jesus Christ and his forgiveness and his redemption. And now she was free. We too can be free. I don't care what you've done in your past. Jesus wants to release you from that past. And that's the magnitude, beloved. Because we see it there as we move into verse 8. Paul says, let's go back and get verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. That was the gift of God's grace to take Paul from where he was to what he would have him do. Paul found so much joy in his new life preaching the gospel. He found so much joy that he was willing to withgo suffering. It was all worth it because of what he knew about Christ. He understood this was all Christ. He understood that it was given to me by the working of God's power. And God will do that for you too. To me, though I'm very least, verse 8 says, of all the saints, this grace was given. Do you know what Paul's Roman name, Paulos, means? It'll make sense once you know it. Little. Little. He understood this was not what he earned because he tried to earn it so hard before but that it was all a gift of grace. You're not good enough. You've got to turn to Christ. That's why it's through the gospel that a people who are not God's people become God's people. That's why it's through the gospel that Paul was made a minister. And that's why it'll be through the gospel that you're healed of your past hurts. Oh, beloved. Not only do they do that, but, this, but the world teaches us different things about what we should be that are just not true. Just like it did Paul. I'll get to that more of that later. This is the principle, though, this magnitude. It's the magnitude by which we see the unsearchable riches of Christ. In other words, it's one of those things biblically that the more we press into it, the more it gives us. And this is a principle with God that's often perverted by sin, so it's hard for us to go after it at full steam. It is why we always desire more. And that's what the human heart does. It desires more, more money, more things. 
and the new thing that becomes the old thing that makes us want the new thing again. Because all things become new, become old, that make us want something new. I have a little saying about this. More will never become more until what you have is enough because more will only become what you have and that is never enough. And it's kind of confusing, but that's what makes it stick. More will never be more until what you have is enough because more will only become what you have and that's never going to be enough if we're talking about the things of the world. But when we bring God into the perspective of this, but when God is what you desire, your desire can grow in proportion to your knowledge of him and never not be enough. It works just the opposite. It'll never not be enough. It'll always be enough. It's order of magnitude. And that's why the final point is magnitude. We have the mystery, which is God is making a people who is not God's people, God's people, because he's making individual men who are not God's men into God's men. And it's by order of magnitude how tightly you grasp a hold of this and how much the change is expressed in your life. Defined, uh, the word magnitude is, is the great size or extent of something, the degree of brightness of an object, and of course the extent of God and the degree of the glory of God only increases with our increase of desire of God. It's just the opposite of the principle of the things of this world. That is, the more we desire God, the more magnitude of efficacious glory is revealed to us from God. Wanting God is never wrong. The more you want, the more you are satisfied, the more you go after. So this order of magnitude is what Paul has in mind here when he says this grace was given to him, which was given to him to become a preacher of God, to preach to the Gentiles, uh, people who were not God's people before, the great unsearchable riches of Christ. And it's in those unsearchable riches, brothers. It's in searching the fact of resurrection from the dead. Is that we'll never die. Is that we're immortal until the day we die here or we leave our physical bodies and then we stand in victory before Jesus Christ. It's in searching the riches of the truth of the reconciliation man has with God. That the enmity, that the hatred's brought down, that God loves us, that we can love God back, and that we can love brothers and sisters. It's in searching the unsearchable riches of Christ as where we find the beginning of peace and truth and life, eternal life, life that can't be snuffed out, life that can't be made fearful. You, nobody can make somebody that believes death is gain fearful. And that's what Paul says, that death is gain for those who are in Christ. It's one of the unsearchable Riches of Christ, the reliance of God's promises, the forgiveness, the sanctification, that Jesus is washing us clean of our sins. We have a new identity. We're not that old person. We're being adopted into that family. We're heirs of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what color our skin is, how bad we think we are. It doesn't matter what we've done in the past. It does not matter. Those things are earthly things that men judge by. God judges by your faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And by the magnitude with which you believe that will be the magnitude with which you find purpose in your life here. Because it's in believing in Christ you push away the old identity. One illustration that's going to point that out a little bit. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke, the sixth chapter. Just a moment longer. Verses 39 and 40. 
Luke 6, 39 and 40. Luke chapter 6, 39 and 40. You see it there? Uh, Jesus uh, told this parable. He said, um, Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? So, that's a simple truth, isn't it? If you had a blind teacher, you're going to be a blind man. And someday when you open your eyes to the glory of Jesus Christ, you're going to see how blind you were. Uh, let me use Charles Darwin and theory of evolution. If you believe Charles Darwin's theory of evolution and you believe that's how life works, one day you're going to wake up and fall into a pit. But if you believe that theory of evolution and the way the beginning of man started, and it may take away a part of your life, you may become a zealot for it. I don't know, you may go to school and you may become a preacher of evolution, a teacher of evolution. But someday when you wake up in the gospel, through the gospel, your life is changed and you know the truth, you're going to be freed of that. You're going to find purpose and meaning that you never had in your life before. And I don't care whether it's a teacher, whether it's an ex-husband or ex-wife or ex-boss or a father who didn't do the right thing or whatever happened to you in your life is that you can wake up and find your purpose the day you find Christ. Hmm? And you won't go into the ditch. You'll be full of joy like Paul was. Look at that life he lived before. He thought he was so right. That's the world. The world wants you to, well, the feminism wants to tell you, little girls, that it's not, you don't have to be a mom. That's not where you'll find your greatest joy. God tells you the opposite. You see, there, and I won't start too far into this, but God made you a certain way. That's nature. And some people like to suppress the truth of nature and send you in a different direction. They're blind. They're going to lead you to a ditch. But let me show you the magnitude of Jesus Christ because it's right there in verse 40. You see it? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Let me tell you what, if you follow a teacher that's telling you that homosexuality is not a sin, if you follow a teacher that tells you evolution is how man came into the planet, if you follow a teacher who is telling you that abortion should be illegal and it's just a choice, if you follow any of those teachers, you're going to be blind for a certain time. You're going to be blind and you got, you're, you're deathly fearful of going into the ditch, and that ditch is eternal death. It could happen, but God's got a plan. And when you believe the gospel, you receive the truth and the love and the forgiveness and the knowledge and the resurrection, all the promises of Christ, all of his riches, and you become his disciple. And if you're a disciple of the greatest of philosophers in this place, Freud, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, Darwin. I don't care. Name one. And they're blind, you're going to end up in the ditch. But if you become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no end to the unsearchable riches. There's no end to the order of magnitude of the things you can know. If he is your teacher. I don't know what magnitude that is. But as much as you want to know. You can go back time and time again to the gospel. And you can look the way it's forgiven you. You can look at God's plan of mercy. That he's brought to you. You can look at the glory of the resurrection. 
that Jesus walked out of that grave. You can look at the glory of how the truth works in your life, how it brings you life, how it changes other people's lives around you. Whatever facet you look at of the gospel and what it's done in a person's life, look at Paul's life. It took him from a murdering, maniacal maniac to a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is purpose. If you want purpose in your life, look at that gospel. Throw off the old identity in Christ and receive all the unsearchable riches of Christ. And it's up to you how much you want to go back and draw from that well because it will never run dry. Gracious Heavenly Fathers, we come this day. My prayer is that folks will understand that you give purpose and meaning. That you take away the sin that's happened in our lives, whether it's somebody that sinned against us when we were a small child or whether we grew to a teaching that seemed right to this world, like 639 would pretend that, that something seemed so real, like Satan stood and tempted Eve, you know, it's desired to make one wise. Why would I not want it? But, Father, the order of magnitude of the gospel is that you free us from those deadly things, those unprofitable things, those things that the world wants to use to define us by. And you give us purpose and meaning that we could have never understood. We could have never hoped to have had any other way, but that through the gospel, through the salvation that you've wrought by your blood on the cross, that you've saved us. And we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for your own possession. We were once not your people, but we are now your people. I was once not your man, but now I am your man. And life has meaning and purpose. Well, my prayer is that every person here this morning, every person that's listening, understands that they can have purpose in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen. Amen. All right, if I could get the men that are going to come.